0: I encourage you this morning to turn into your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. As we continue our, our exposition of Matthew, we're in Matthew 24. Last week we looked at the first half of this chapter. A very important chapter and a very challenging chapter and very long chapter. But as we consider... God's Word today, we want to turn our attention to Matthew 24. We're going to be looking at verses 29 through 51, the second half of this text. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on clouds, on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. That if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have left his house, let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is faithful and wise? Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give him their to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Lord God, would you give us now the ability to understand with clarity and certainty your word, and as we consider the future reality and promise of our Lord's return, would you help us to be shaped by the truth of this word so that we are ready and that we are prepared for when that day comes? Father, would you have your way in our hearts, and would your word accomplish what you have desired and determined this very day? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. As many of you know, or many of you uh, probably know, uh, we're from northeast Tennessee. And in northeast Tennessee, there are plenty of mountains. Appalachian Mountains run through northeast Tennessee. You can see them right out our door, and yes, it is Appalachian. Do not say Appalachian. We will know that there is error in your voice when you say Appalachian. It is Appalachian. All right, let's practice this. No, I'm kidding. Uh, Even when you hear people refer to Appalachia, they don't say Appalachia. See, there's inconsistencies there. But it's Appalachian Mountains. That's what we grew up surrounded by. In fact, our previous home overlooked a valley where there were two mountain ridges that, that, that that, that came, that created the valley, and eventually they, they merged together. And from a distance, you would look at that mountain range and, and you would see what you thought was one mountain. You'd see this, this beautiful, this beautiful, uh, this not just a hill, it was indeed a mountain. And we had two of those that were visible from our previous home. But when you either were in an airplane and flew over those same mountains, that same mountain, or you approached it uh, in, in more of a closer perspective and you got sort of an upfront uh, vantage point, you would realize that there was not just one mountain, but rather there were a series of ridges that contributed to this mountain range. And there's a big difference, because when you see a series of mountain ranges, you realize that that mountain is much larger than first imagined. It's not just one, it's multiple ranges that make up that one mountain range. When you think about biblical prophecy, that's often how it works. The Old Testament prophets, for example, would often refer to an event that from a distance looked like they were talking about one event, but when in reality they were talking about an event that was made up of several ridges. would have immediate application for the present, or application soon after that they spoke, but there was still something yet to be fulfilled far off in the distance. I believe that when you come to Matthew chapter 24, Jesus is using that kind of approach as he's unpacking for us an event that ultimately culminates in his second coming. But again, as as we saw last week, the disciples come to him and they ask him. He he refers to the temple and he tells them that the temple is going to be destroyed. And so they, in their mind, they associate the destruction of the temple and the end of the age as the same event. If we're losing the temple, the end must be near. And so Jesus sets out now in Matthew 24 to say, Disciples, what you are assuming is that there's one mountain range, when in reality there are multiple ranges that make up That mountain range. You see, Jesus deals with events that the disciples would soon experience in the fall of Jerusalem and destruction of the temple. But he's also looking ahead to the end of the age. He answers their question. They they ask him, Lord, when when will these things be? Verse 3. And what will be the sign of your coming and close of the age? Do you see They're asking several questions, assuming it's all going to happen at the same time, and he helps them separate the two. Here's when this this temple is going to fall, which I think happened in AD 70, as far as the application goes, but but there's yet a, a future fulfillment of the end of the age that is yet to come, and that's really his primary focus in our text today, although I will admit Matthew chapter 24, and any honest scholar of, of Scripture will admit that Matthew chapter 24 really is, is challenging in trying to understand, uh, it's, it, you can't just divide it in half and say, okay, he's talking about the fall of Jerusalem, in the first half, the second coming, and he sort of mixes and matches a bit, and, and, and it's challenging because, okay, you come to verses 29 through 31, you say, okay, now he's talking about the second coming, clearly, but then in verse 34 he says, I tell you the truth, this generation will not pass away until all these things happen. What's he mean by that? And so we're going to try to talk about that this morning. So this, this chapter, though perplexing, though challenging, I do believe is still clear. There have been various interpretations of it. Some think all of it's referring to future. Some think all of it's happened in the past. And I think, as I told you last week, I think that there are applications to both. There are certainly relevant applications, uh, an immediate uh, application for the disciples and their generation, but also application for the future um, as well. So last week, we, we really honed in a little bit on, on the persecution that the disciples in that generation and su- subsequent generations will endure. But this week, we're going to be talking about what seems to be referring to the second coming of Jesus. Here's the, here's the, here's the point that Jesus is making. Jesus will come again. The end of the age will happen. Jesus will return And we are urged to be prepared for that day. That's basically what the second half, if not the entirety of Matthew chapter 24, is getting at. The the end is coming. The disciples were having to be told, that's not happening yet. All these things have to happen first. They thought it was just around the corner. But, But Jesus is saying, the end is coming. I will come again. You need to be ready for that day. You need to be prepared. You need to be awake alert looking forward to that day and so as we think about that there are several truths that emerge from this passage as we prepare for his second coming let's talk about these these truths this morning number 1 let's look let's talk about let's consider the reality of his coming and you see that in verses 29 through 41 the reality of his coming earlier in the chapter Jesus had warned several times that there would be false messiahs you you see that there in in verse 24 and you also see it uh, earlier on in the chapter where he's warning them in their day and in later latter days there would be these who would claim to be messiah false teachers who and he's basically saying do not pay attention to those who claim to be me because when i come again it will be clear It will be unmistakable when I come again. So don't buy into these false messiahs, these false teachers. And so he picks up in verse 29, and he begins to describe that day in light of the disciples' question back in verse 3. There would be a sign from heaven. There's debate all about what that is. I'm not going to get into that this morning. There would be a sign of his coming, and it would be a worldwide event. It's not just an isolated event that happens. The whole world will know. It will be obvious, it will be apparent, and Jesus describes his return, he he couldn't describe it with any more certainty than he does here in this passage. Verse 30, then will appear a sign in heaven, then all the tribes will mourn. He will send his angels, they will gather his elect. This is not just wishful thinking, this will happen. You can be certain that he will come again. We read in First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. I know there's various interpretations of this, but this is what he says. This is what Paul says about that day. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring him with those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Paul says, encourage one another because of the certainty of his coming. He is coming again to gather us to himself. Now, I want you to consider a few important observations about this, what I would describe as a glorious and terrifying day. It's both a glorious and terrifying day when when Christ returns. Number one, it will be a sobering day. Look at verses 30 through 31. Then will appear, this is after the tribulation, days, verse 29, Then will appear in the heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, what days? What what are the tribulation of those days? Well, again, there's been different takes. Some assume that that automatically talks about a future great tribulation, actually the second half of a seven-year tribulation. Others say, no, this is the period of the disciples onward. Others say, no, it just had to do with the destruction of Jerusalem because you have that verse 34 in there that, that seems to, 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 to cause some struggle there. This is going to happen during the disciples' day. I think that best understood that the tribulation of those days are those days that begin and intensified with the disciples that continue until Jesus returns, not saying that things won't intensify even greater right before he returns. but I think it's, it's a whole period of time. Uh, between them and the second coming. Context seems to indicate that because the disciples would, would experience it, like I said in verse 34, and I believe that we see the church continuing to, to endure in periods of tribulation in the world today. Regardless, the focus is more on the return here than it is the tribulation. The point is that upon his return, all the tribes of the earth will mourn. That is language taken from the prophet Zechariah in Zechariah chapter 12, verses 10 through 14. There in Zechariah chapter 12, verses 10 through 14, the prophet prophesied about a time when Israel would mourn the one in whom they had pierced, having realized that they had crucified the Messiah, and they go into a period of mourning over their gross error. Understatement of the day. And so Jesus picks up on that same language and says, just like Israel would mourn, how much more so will the nations, having realized their foolish rejection of the gospel when Christ returns, the the entire world would be mourning when this day comes. It would be a sobering day because when Christ returns, We're told here that he will come in power and glory to gather his elect people to himself from all nations, and yet at the same time, all nations will be mourning his coming. That's how I get that it will be both a glorious and terrifying day. If you are a Christian, it will be a glorious day. It will be a glorious coming. If you are not a Christian, it will be a terrifying day. Sobering day. It will be a soon day. Jesus now uses this illustration from the fig tree. A fig tree would often produce tender branches just before it blossomed, which was an indication of the coming summer. And he uses that sort of as a word picture, if you will, as an illustration about his coming. He says, So also, when you see all these things, know that he is near. And we're not given the, 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 the amount of space and time as to when between the blossoming of the fig tree and the arrival of summer. He's not, I don't think he's, he's applying the exact number of days that that would happen to his coming. He said, listen, all of this is going to happen, but know that after all of this happens, that the coming of the Son of Man is the next major event that you should expect. And again, they're thinking simultaneous, Jerusalem falls, the temple's destroyed, end of the age happens, and Jesus is thinking mountain ridges, right? He's, he's not thinking one grand event at one point in time, he's thinking multiple events that are part of this, this whole redemptive history that will unfold. It begins in those days of the Messiah. Like I said last week, I believe that the last, are we living in the last days? Yes. The disciples said the same thing. I believe that from Jesus' ascension till his second coming are the last days. Told that the fall of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple specifically, must precede his coming. And all these birth pains, all these things that you see the rumors of wars, the the famines, the the things must precede, precede his coming. Even if that coming is delayed for a long time from our perspective. Remember, we don't number days and years and months like God does. We we, we think differently. He's patient. We know that from, I think it's 2 Peter, that a day is like a thousand years. And so it could be many, many years before this event unfolds. But I believe that it will be soon, meaning that that's why we can refer to Jesus' second coming as an imminent coming, as, as one that he could return at any moment. I believe that. And then in verses 36 through 41, we see that it will be sudden. Verse 36, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. So he begins to to describe how this is going to happen. It's going to be a sudden event. He begins by, by comparing it to how things were in the days of Noah. He says, as were the days of Noah, so will the coming of the Son of Man be, verse 37. So he looks back to the days of Noah, and he says, you know, in those days, the the people had, you know, the, the few that knew Noah, right, in the immediate geographical context thought he was crazy for building this huge boat, but the vast majority of the human population gave no thought whatsoever to any coming flood, and they were just going about their 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 own lives as they normally would. They were eating and drinking and marrying and doing their thing. And then, boom, the flood came, swept them away, suddenly. Jesus says, my coming will be like that. And he goes on to, to illustrate that. He says there will be two men in the field. One will be taken, one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one taken, and one left. Now, some think that the two men and the two women, one taken, one left, is a Uh, description of the rapture. I don't think that at all. In fact, there are many people who embrace the pre-tribulation rapture, the premillennial perspective, who believe that, indeed, he's talking about judgment here, that those who were taken are taken into judgment. Those who remain remain into the kingdom, And, and that makes perfect sense because he said he compares it to the days of Noah. Those who were taken in judgment, swept away, were taken into judgment. Those who remained were Noah and his family. So I think that you see the he's using that contrast there. He's he's warning them it's going to be sudden. Judgment's coming totally unexpected. Therefore you need to be ready. Friends, this word is very important for you to hear today. Because there's coming a day when when Jesus re- will return and he will gather his people From the ends of the earth to himself. And you can debate all you want on how that's going to unfold, and that's fine. But the reality is, is that if you're not in Christ, that that day will be a terrible day for you, because it will mark the beginning of an eternity of separation for you in a place called hell. If you think, well, I've got time, then we'll get to you in just a minute, because Assuming Jesus doesn't return before then, right? If you think I've got time, if you think I I can put this off and, you know, I'll I'll get serious about spiritual things later on. I'm sort of living life up right now. By the way, that's sort of offensive to a Christian. Friend, I can't think of any more blessing. I can't think of any more joy to be had and to be embraced and to be celebrated than walking in Christ. There's no greater blessing, there's no greater joy than than knowing Jesus and walking in Him, and even through the trials of life, there's no no greater promise that we have. So if you've embraced this thing that that being a Christian is somehow this miserable, miserable thing, that, well, I'll get to that one day because I do want to go to heaven. (laughs) Friends, you're missing the whole point. The truth of the matter is, is that we all are sinners and none of us deserve to be taken to heaven. The truth of the matter is, is that God is a holy God. He's righteous. He's perfect. He's sovereign. He's, he's the one who, who made the world and the universe. And he's the one in which all of us will stand and give accounts. And yet all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And all of us, Ephesians 2, were by nature Children of wrath. But the promise is that God has sent his one and only son into the world already. He lived a life of perfection and perfect obedience and compliance to his father and his father's law. And yet he died on the cross for sinners like you and like me. He gave himself the perfect one for imperfect ones. So that if you would just look to him and trust in him, your sins would be forgiven. Your life would be transformed. The Holy Spirit would come take residence in you. And you would have hope of this day. And it would not be a terrifying day for you. It would be one of glory and, and one of joy. And if, you, if you're here today and this sounds terrifying to you, if you think, I'm not in Christ, I'm not a Christian, and, the, and if he comes back today, I'm in big trouble. Friend, trust in Jesus. Place your faith in him. Believe in him. Embrace him as Savior and King of your life. Turn from your sin. Trust in him. And you will be saved. It's not complicated. There's not a checklist of things. You know the checklist of things that had to happen? Jesus nailed it to a cross. He nailed it to a cross and he said, done. It is finished. Just look to him and rest in him, trust in him, believe in him, and you'll be saved. You'll be rescued. You'll be given life and your sins will be forgiven, all of them. You'll be given a righteousness that's not yours, it's Christ, but that God will now see you as perfect and blameless. Don't wait. That's the reality of his coming. Number two, the response to his coming. What I just said is certainly a response. But it leads us to consider this further. You see the response in verses 42 through 46. He states the certainty is coming, this this day is coming when Christ will return and gather his people to himself and then in verse 42 he says, therefore stay awake for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. You do not know on what day that this, this event will unfold and he begins to explain how we ought to live in light of that day. He In verse 42 says stay awake, in verse 44 he says be ready. The exhortations that we see here can can be summarized in those two imperatives. Stay awake, be ready. But 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 a couple of things to note here. Number one, it means you should be prepared. All right? Be a good Boy Scout. Isn't that the motto? Be prepared? I don't know. Be prepared. Your life ought to be lived out in a manner that anticipates that day. But too often we conduct ourselves as if this day will never come. How many times this past week did you contemplate the second coming of Jesus and live and order your life in anticipation of that day? Dale Bruner put it this way. He said, our not knowing, when Jesus comes, our not knowing is necessary but dangerous because we might use not knowing as an excuse for not acting. But disciples not knowing when should make them alert lest they be unprepared for the noble that of his coming. Our not knowing is, is necessary, but it's dangerous. It's dangerous. Because we, we can deceive ourselves and we can, we can begin to think that, well, surely he won't come today. And stay awake, be ready. And these are not passive actions. Have you ever tried to stay awake when you're driving at night? Or stay awake during a sermon? I'm just kidding. I think about driving at night. There are often times when I've I've been driving and, you know, that that sleep just hits you. I don't just passively say, I'm going to stay awake now. I'm, I'm working. I have the window rolled down, radio turned up, trying to talk to people the car, I'm actively trying my best to stay awake, to try to stay alert, because bad things will happen if I don't. Stay awake, be ready, not passive actions. Think about just recent hurricanes that, uh, that have hit even our area in recent years, or hur- Hurricane Katrina that hit the Gulf Coast years ago. When there's a hurricane, at least in our day and time, there is adequate warning that's given days if not weeks in advance. You know, the Weather Channel guys and gals, they're just, some of us just get a, you know, drawn right into that, right? Especially if you're male. And so we're given adequate warning, we're getting, giving adequate uh, uh, knowledge of, of what's coming so that we can make proper preparations. Now listen, if you knew that there was a Category 5 hurricane going to make landfall, and, and St. Mary's County was right in the middle of that. Do you think that, that the day before that it arrived, you would get your lounge, your, your lounge chairs out and, 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 and your cherry Cokes and margaritas and just say, let it come? We're Baptist, so I'm sure it will be cherry Cokes. That would be the most foolish thing you could do. But that's how we live life in light of the second coming of Jesus. Because listen, friends, if you're not in Christ, there is something coming on, his, on that day when he returns that is far worse than a Category 5 hurricane. And yet we live life as if it's not going to be a big deal. Friend, you would take action if you knew that was going to happen. The, the thing is, while we were given adequate warning about a hurricane, Friends, we don't know when Christ is going to make landfall. We're not told. Therefore, you should be ready. We should also be faithful. Not only are we to prepare for that day, we are to be faithful with our responsibilities until that day. Remember, he said earlier that the gospel will go to the the end of the earth before the end comes. Verse 14, this gospel of the kingdom will be, will be proclaimed. It will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Friends, we have a lot of work to do. We have a lot of work. Some argue that that has already happened. Some argue, no, there's not because there's all these unreached peoples. We'll let the missiologists sort of debate that. But the, the point is, is that we are called to be faithful. We're called to be obedient in light of His coming. It's not that we somehow finish our work and just sit back and relax until that day comes. Listen to what Paul says as he goes on in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there's peace and security, Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day... Let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep we might live in Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. we, we, We cannot afford to grow lazy and sleepy and complacent as the people of God. As a Christian, you should regularly stop and ask yourself this question. Do I look like someone who is ready for Christ's return? You should ask yourself that question. Do I look like someone? Do I act like someone? Do I present myself? Do I order my life in such a way that I am looking for and ready for Christ's return? Does your life reflect that expectancy? Is, is that true of you? Would your friends and your family, your spouse, your children say yes? They order themselves in such a way that they're ready and expecting the return of Jesus. What agenda drives you every day? Is it your own agenda or is it the agenda of the kingdom and anticipation of the second coming? Don't be caught sleeping. But then there's the result. Of his coming. You see that in verses 45 through 51. In these few and final verses that we see in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus compares the wise slave versus the wicked slave or servant. There will be those who have given themselves joyfully to the service of their master, but then there will be those who are so immersed in their own selfish pursuits that they have no concern whatsoever about faithfulness and obedience to their king, to their master. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give him their food at his proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Again, the the coming of Christ will mean Different things to different people, primarily two. It will either be a day of joy and rejoicing or it will be a terrifying day and troubling day. There will be the faithful who see this coming as their blessed hope. And there will be those who see it as a dreadful curse. You see, number one, the reward that's given in verse 46. Blessed is the servant his master master finds when he comes. You will be recognized, he says. Verse 47, he says, Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. There will be a recognition of faithfulness when Jesus comes again, and there will be a reward for faithfulness. In fact, he's told you will be given more responsibility. There's a reward. Friends, your labor, my labor, does not go unnoticed in God's kingdom. We don't do it to be noticed. We don't serve to make a name for ourselves. But the Lord marks those who are his. He sees those who are faithful. And he will reward you when he comes again. He will bless you. But there's also the wicked servant. Verse 48. That wicked servant says to himself, My master's delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus doesn't mince words here, does he? He doesn't beat around the bush. He says when he comes again, there will be those who are rewarded and there will be those who are punished. I think primarily those whom he's talking to here in verse 48 when he calls them wicked servant, I think he's, you know, I think there's a larger context most likely, but I think he's specifically addressing those who profess to be Christians but aren't really Christians. The hypocrite, Matthew chapter 23. Such people arrogantly think they've got plenty of time before they give account because all will give account, Christians and non alike. They think, I've got plenty of time. You know, I'll I'll get serious about serving in the church later. I'll get get more focused when when I grow up a bit. Maybe I'm just wrapping up high school or college, and, you know, I've got things to do. When I get married, maybe I'll settle down. Especially when I have kids, I'll settle down. There are those who think They are serving their master, when in reality they are serving nothing but themselves. False professions. Churches are filled, filled with these people. Churches are made up of many men and women, and even boys and girls, who profess out of their mouth one thing, but their hearts and their motives reveal something altogether different. All I have to do is ask you how you live a typical week, I'm not here to evaluate your week. You evaluate it. How did this week go? How how often were you in the Word? How often were you in prayer? How often was conversation about the Lord coming up? Were you bearing the fruit of a disciple? Were you pursuing kingdom, kingdom things? Or were you more concerned about yourself and protecting your own kingdom, building your own kingdom? Not even thinking about the coming of your Master. There will be punishment for those who have truly not engaged with their master. They've not truly trusted. They're a hypocrite. Friend, there's coming a day when Jesus will return. Jesus is coming again. He's coming again. He will raise the dead. He will judge the world. And eventually, he will establish the new heavens and the new earth. And for a Christian, you ought to say, yes, I long for that day. I want that day. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. But if you're not a Christian, that will not be your response. For a non-Christian, it ought to be the most frightening thing you could imagine. When will this day be? Friend, all I can tell you is we're somewhere on the ridges. I know we're not on the first one. And I know that we've not quite made it to that last and final ridge because he's not yet returned. How close we are to that final ridge on that mountaintop, I don't know. We're closer than we were. I can't tell you when that day will be. It's not my job, nor is it my ability to be able to articulate that. But let's not worry about when that day will be. But rather, let's let our lives reflect in how we are preparing for that day and what we are doing in anticipation of that day. The when will happen. And you and I don't know when that is. But what we can be focused on and what we can take care of now is the how we're preparing for and what we are doing in light of that day. So what are you doing, fellow Christians? What are you doing to stay awake? What are you doing to be ready? What are you doing in anticipation of the coming of your Savior? Does your life reflect one who lives in anticipating the second coming of our Savior? And maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian and you you think about this, you think about the second coming, maybe you don't even believe in this stuff. I think it's just a bunch of man-made, crazy stuff. Or maybe you say, yeah, I believe in it, but I'm, just not, I'm, not, I'm not ready to, to get serious yet. Friend, if you're not ready, then I would tell you that today is the day of salvation. Jesus is coming again. And I can't promise you that he will delay any longer. And you will stand before him and give account. And you will either be brought into his kingdom and him say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Or he will cast you into outer darkness and say, I never knew you. Which will it be? Which will it be for you? Let's pray. Lord God, we, we consider your truth this morning in your word. And Father, my concern for my own heart and for the hearts of these gathered in this room is that we would not take the truth of Matthew 24 to heart. That in just a moment, when we stand and sing and the final amen is given and we turn immediately and talk about sports or the weather or this or that, that we would demonstrate a lack of seriousness about what we've heard today. That's my concern. So, Lord, would you, by your Holy Spirit, enable us not to be quickly drawn back into the kingdom of self today. But Father, would you give us open eyes and open ears and open heart to absorb the truth in which we've heard today in light of the coming of our King and make appropriate adjustments And preparations in light of that day. There's not a person in this room, Lord, that should not respond to what we've heard today. Myself included. Lord, there there are things in our lives, Lord, that need to be changed. As Christians in this room, there are Christians in this room, Lord, that that lived this week without any thought of the coming of Christ. That made no investment in eternity. Lived selfishly and full of pride and arrogance. Father, there perhaps were people in this room that that give no thought of this day because they have no saving knowledge of Jesus. Lord, would you you captivate their hearts? Would you open their eyes to their stubborn rebellion and their resistance to you? And flood them with that life-changing hope of Jesus. Would you help them to see that what He accomplished was sufficient to save them? Would you give them a heart that would want to run to Him in joy and gladness? Father, would you save people in this room even now? Lord, another concern I have is that people want to want to get so bogged down in debate of end times. Lord, how foolish we are. How foolish we are to focus more on a chart or on a perspective than we are on preparation and faithfulness and obedience. Sure, let's have discussion, but Lord, help us to understand what's more important. And that is the fact that Jesus is coming again. That is the fact that He's coming again physically, visibly, and He will bring an end To all things. We will be raised. We will be judged. And we will be separated. God, would you help our hearts be ready for that day? Would you move in our lives in such a way, God, that we would leave here more ready, more expectant than when we came here today?